Hello, and welcome to Borders Blatherings, the podcast that shines a light on the curious, shadowy, and often magical history of the Scottish borderlands. Mary, today I thought we could blether about Safeout, Safein. Ah, the great clarion call of the Gala common writings. Is that what you want to talk about? Is it only the Gala Shields common writing that has this? Indeed, it's only Gala where you shout out safe out, safe in. The others, mm, no, very different set of circumstances. Ah, the common writings themselves, as you mentioned, were at a particularly Scottish Borders festival. Can we talk a bit about the origins of the common writings? Do they owe their origins to the centuries-long enmity between the Scots and the English as they take place around the Anglo-Scottish border? I can't think what you mean, Doug. You mean the Scots and the English don't get on with each other? Uh, Yes, when we were indulging in our national pastime of beating each other up through the centuries, that's where the common writings sort of started. But it also started in the fact that folk were just trying to keep their communities safe. So what you did was... Mm -hmm. The lads would get on the back of the horses and they would ride round the border of your little area, your village, your town, your area, to make sure no big bad guys were coming in to get you. They might have been English or they might have just been the guys from the next over village or the next over town. So it's a sort of amalgam of that antipathy and an amalgam of you know local rivalry and also the fact that the border at that time was a bit of a shady place so you weren't quite sure what was the border and what wasn't. So it's a mixture of all of those things coming together to what is now the common writings. Right. I've often read about the area around the Anglo-Scottish border uh, being known as the debatable lands. Yes. And uh, again, this was basically because everybody in the borders was, how can I put this politely, a bit of a lad at that time. (laughs) And the king in Scotland and the king in England, and it didn't matter which king, took one look at the borders and went, oh, no, what are we going to do with that lot up there? So in Edinburgh, the king kept saying, well, it's nothing to do with me, that's part of England. And in London, the king did exactly the same thing and went, oh, nothing to do with me, it's Scotland. So nobody was exactly sure where this border was. And neither of the, the kings wanted to actually spend time and money trying to sort out these wild lads that were charging about the place on horseback, getting up to all sorts. And, uh, of course, the local lords, I wouldn't exactly say encouraged it, but let's say as long as the lads were plundering the right side of the border or the right community, they didn't really care what was going on. So it just became really debatable as to where everybody lived, who everybody lived and who had authority. So, fun and games had by all. Great. How far back do the original common writings actually date? Oh, dear. You do realise it's a good thing this is a podcast because people would throw things at us. Um, The earliest claimed one is from 1513, and that's Selkirk. You've got Hoyt that claims 1514, and then you've got Lauder coming in at 1686. But they may be slightly older, but they might be also slightly younger. And then you've got Peebles, which is a fun one, which may or may not date back 2,000 years. So where do you want to start with that particular 
string. I love your answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about the debatable lands, let me tell you a quick story. Okay. Yeah. I was in the nearby village of Lauder one evening for something to eat with a student. At that time, students stayed with my family, intensive English language training. And after our meal, we went into one of the local pubs in Lauder. And on walking in with uh, this guy, who was a senior manager from a German-based multinational company, his first question to me was, are these people going to have a fight? <laughs> right. After I'd congratulated him on his correct use of future grammar in English, I said, no, actually, what they're doing is having a, an in-depth discussion about the oldest common writing. It was uh, around the time of uh, the common writing festivals in summer. And his next question was, what's a common writing? Uh -huh. <laughs> so <clears throat> I took the trainer's way out and said, well, remember we were talking about your global travels earlier today, and you spoke to me about the Pamplona bull run. I said, think that, but horses instead of bulls. And, 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 and that dealt with that. And I said to him, well, I can prepare a lesson tonight and we'll do more. We can practice storytelling or something tomorrow in a, in a lesson together. So I assured him they were just having a debate. But while drinking our beers, I'm listening in. And it seemed to me that there were three main candidates for the oldest common writing. And this was becoming heated. And as you mentioned, if I remember correctly, these were Lauder itself, Selkirk. And Hoyek. So my question to you is, is this verifiable or should is it best left to the tavern debating chamber? I think it's best left to the tavern debating chamber unless you are very, very sure of your facts and like us, you're not a borderer because I don't know any borderer that would want to get involved in that particular uh, fight. Those are the big three. Well, Selkirk, Coyke and Lauder call themselves the big three, and I suppose in a way they are. But you've got common writings, because their actual origins are so complicated and complex and nuanced and interesting, nobody's actually sure exactly what started when. Um, because you have lots of ones that started later on, um, in the 1930s actually, but what they were doing was they weren't inventing a common writing. They were stretching back, going back into history and rediscovering their original uh, common writing. So yeah. that's why it's quite different. And as I say, Peebles has a common writing that they rediscovered for Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee, sorry, Diamond Jubilee, and you'd get that wrong, in 1897. Uh, so that's when their common writing was rediscovered. But they also tacked on the Beltane Festival, and that goes back to a fair that was set up with uh, James the Sixth, And that's fair enough, so that's in that sort of era, but then Beltane itself is actually a pre-Christian pagan Celtic festival. So people could, if you really stretch your definitions there, say that their festivals go back 2,000 years, and they probably do. This, of course, will annoy anybody from Selkirk, Lauder and Hoyk, but, you know, what's new in the borders? Do I detect the fingerprints of the Treaty of Union in, in, in any of this? this, this idea of a unified Britain? Yes, I mean, in a lot of cases, the, there were several, as I say, late comers, if you like, people that rediscovered 
their uh, their common writings in the 1930s and into the 40s and 50s. And I think it was a case of where it was Britain was changing. The world was changing between 1930 and about 1955. We know that the world was changing quite a bit and Britain's place in the world was changing quite a bit. And when there's high politics going on in London and Edinburgh and places like that, local communities were starting to wonder about their place, their sense of place and sense mm -hmm. of community. And that's actually what's core of the common writings. The oldest one doesn't really matter, or perhaps that's just me not being a border. The oldest one doesn't matter. The biggest one doesn't matter. The fanciest one doesn't matter. What matters is that sense of community and that sense of place and sense of belonging that the common writings brings to the town and its local area, that sense of local pride that we have these old traditions. You're reaching back into history to find your place in the present and for the future. Okay, great. To some extent, you've preempted another question that I have. Does it matter? As a city boy, what I have noticed since living down here in the borders is the sheer amount of rivalry <laughs> that goes on between various towns and villages. But does it matter? I think the rivalry is mostly good-natured rivalry. Um, it is a case of, it's not so much being aggressive, but more being defensive. It's being strong and brave and protecting your community. Because the common writings are not about going out and attacking the next town over. It's just defending your town from a potential attack. So the, the rivalry that's there is actually, uh, uh, I think, a very soft rivalry. If you think about it, the cornet, the brawlad, the, the, these, the, the brawlad and the brawlass and, and all of the, the, the civic leaders, they go around the other uh, riding towns. They visit, they... they they go to children's schools. Everybody is involved in the common writings. If you see the common writings, it's an immense thing to watch 200 horses, mounted horses, coming down a high street. And there's folk in their 70s and there's little seven-year-olds on ponies. It's an amazing thing to see. And the fact that they ride out and the fact that they go to other towns. So the rivalry is there, but it's very much a friendly rivalry. The days of... People carrying swords and clubs, uh, that's long gone, thankfully. So, yeah, it, it is there, but it's more defensive than aggressive. Thanks. Now, those on horseback are often referred to as the reavers, which is a, it is a very romantic image, a reaver. Can you just explain to our listeners the origins of that term? The reavers, the reavers are slightly different, although they, again, with the borders, everything sort of melds together. The reavers were actually, depending on your point of view, were romantic robbers who cared for their communities or they were murdering so-and-sos that uh, pillaged the next-door community. And what had started as a piece of necessity where people were attacking each other, and so, again... The, the men of your community would go on horseback. And what started off as defensive became aggressive. And what you would do is you would go to the next village over and you would steal the cattle and take the cattle back. Because reaving just means robbing. So you would go and you would rob the cattle from the next village, take it back to your village. And then the other village would come and they would steal the cattle and take it back to their village. And that sort of started for a little while. This tit for tat started for a while. And then it escalated. And you didn't just steal the cattle 
but you burnt the roofs of the houses. Mm. Now, the problem with this is this tended to happen just about autumn harvest time because what would happen is most people would be slaughtering most of their cattle. You'd salt the meat for the winter because there was no fodder to feed the cattle over the winter. You've got the meat to take care of and then you'd start breeding your cattle again in the spring. But then the reavers turn up, steal all your cattle and burn the roofs of your houses out. And if you've ever been out in a border's winter, let me tell you, you need a roof on your house in the border's winter. And then we went from stealing cattle and burning houses to stealing cattle and burning houses and kidnapping the young women. And then we went to murdering people and so it became worse and worse and worse. So that becomes quite a dark part of border's history. And again, um, leads into those debatable lands that we've talked about before where both the, the courts are looking at this chaos that's going on and they're looking at the the lords of the marshes, the lords of the borders to sort this out. So that becomes quite a dark history, whereas the common ridings is much more of a defensive thing. You know, we're, we're, the folk of Galashiels are not going down to Hoyk to burn anybody's house. Well, I hope not, anyway. <laughs> let's, let's hope not. That's, that's great. Well explained. Thank you. Thank you. Let's move forward then to today. Um, maybe our listeners, especially those who've never been to a common riding, and I would have one word of advice for anyone planning to do that. The first time I went to the common riding in Selkirk, I'd had a bit to drink the night before, and I didn't realize that, to paraphrase Frank Sinatra, everything kicked off in the wee small hours of the morning. Absolutely. <laughs> maybe you could give listeners a, a flavor of what they might experience and see. You mentioned earlier thousands of people on horseback. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you look at Selkirk, you start off in the morning and, I, I mean, I don't know what time they get up in the morning, just, you know, border people, country people, they get up in the middle of the, middle of the night. So they get up in the morning and there is a parade into your market square, whether you're in Selkirk or Hoyk or whatever. So you've got a parade in the morning. You've got bands. You have got grown men singing songs. You have got everybody's dressed up, every, every town has its colours, and so you're dressed up in the colours. All of the shop fronts are decorated, there's bunting everywhere, everybody's excited. There are, of course, the usual speeches, the great and the good get up and they make a speech, and then you have your brolad and your brolass or your corded or whatever, you have these, these ceremonial names, and they're wearing fancy riding gear and they've got sashes on and all the girls are done. Every woman in the area has had their hair done at the local hairdresser, of course. <laughs> so you've got all of that done. And then the horses start to ride out. The horses start to gather and they gather and they gather. And then the signal is given and they're off and they ride out. And then if you're in the town, you see the ride out. And then there's this great scramble as everybody in the town runs out of the town to get to a good vantage point to watch as they ride round that boundary, up into the hills, through the rivers, and then back round into the into the town square with the clattering of those hoofs on cobbles. In Selkirk, you've got the casting of the colours because one of the last lads to survive the Battle of Flodden had managed to steal a standard and he came back and legend is that he cast this flag and cast it three times and then threw it to the ground before he collapsed. And there's cheering and there's a lot of eating and there's an awful lot of drinking, but it's a great whole atmosphere. And I mean, to, to, get, to give you an idea of this atmosphere, I know of men 
who have been living with their partners for 15 years and never got married because you can't be one of the leaders if you're a married man. Oh. And it doesn't matter that they've been with their partner for 15 years and they've got three kids and a mortgage and a car. They are still in the hope that they will become one of the riders. I know of grown men with tears in their eyes as they sing the songs as they come through. It's an amazing spectacle. It's welcoming, it's exhilarating, it's exciting, and it's it's the borderlands in all its fine colours and fine glory. And these festivals, as I mentioned earlier, do attract a huge number of emigrants. Um, I, I know I've rubbed shoulders with people from Australia who have the roots here in, in the, the Scottish borders who've made that trip, especially to being here. Oh yeah, I mean coming coming home to the ridings is a big thing. If you think of if you think of something like the you know the big festival they have in Brazil, the big festival in Rio, and they have the huge festival mm. in Rio, and the minute the festival is over, they start planning for the next one. That's the same in the borders for the border ridings. Forget Hogmanay, forget Christmas, forget anything else. The summer months are the ridings. The minute they're over, they start planning for the next one. And the folk come in from Australia and Canada and New Zealand and America and all sorts of places that come over who are Scottish expats or their great granny was once in the borders or things like that. But you also get folk from Europe. You get folk from Germany and Austria and Italy and the Netherlands who have obviously their own traditions and they're fascinated by this. And mm. it's, it's part of the colour of it that it is... I'm going to use a word that I know. I'm going to use a phrase that I know as a language person you're not going to like. It's very unique. <laughs> I can see you looking at me. I know, I know. But it is that way. It is very special. It is unique to the border. There are other places, just like there are other supermarkets available. There are other common ridings available. But I can assure you, the ones in the borders, that's the genuine article. Thank you. Now, talking about... Um other common writings available. Am I right in thinking that there were a plethora of Johnny-come-latelys that started to show themselves in the 1930s? I'm thinking particularly of equestrian events around the Lothians, a little bit north of here. Yes. Um, as we were talking earlier about that changing place for Britain between sort of 1930s and 1950s and that sense of community, a lot of other places sort of reinvented or rediscovered their old traditions. So you get ridings of marches or you get um, the Herring Queen festivals. You get these old traditions being reinvented and rediscovered and repackaged. And again, it's all coming back for community and place and identity and belonging. Um, there aren't many that I'm aware of that actually involve horses Possible exception being maybe Linlithgow, where they have the ridings out in Linlithgow. But again, that's slightly different because of it being a royal borough and Linlithgow Palace. It's slightly different again. But yes, in the Lothians and going over into maybe Dumfries and Galloway, South Lanarkshire, there's a few areas there that have picked up on other ones. But nothing, nothing to compare to the border ridings, no. You mentioned Linlithgow, and I'm, I'm sure we can't have a podcast about Scottish history without, uh, if, if people from Germany and Austria are listening, without Mary Queen of Scots. Is, is, there, is that in any way 
connected to the fact that Mary, Queen of Scots, spent a lot of time there? Possibly, yes. I mean, she is our, our tragic queen, if you like. You know, she is the, the world-famous tragic queen. And so that's why I think Linlithgow has such a rich, very rich medieval history. But, mm. of course, Mary, Queen of Scots spent quite a lot of time down in the borders as well. Oh, did she, in um, fact? She yeah. spent a lot of time down here. And her third husband was a Liddesdale man. Boswell was a, was a borderer. And so she spent a lot of time down here in Borthwick Castle, um, which is just on the border between the borders and Midlothian, was where she uh, eventually surrendered to the Confederate Lords. So there's a lot there with uh, Mary Queen of Scots. She was very much a borders queen. She wasn't a Highland queen. She was a borders queen. She was a queen for all of Scotland, but she was mainly... Yeah, it was the Southlands, it was the Borderlands. Yes, yes, a little bit south of here. In fact, we have Little France. Indeed, um, indeed. Which it owes its name to Mary's court at the time. Indeed, yes. Um, she was forever on the move, poor indeed, Mary. yes. And of course, as a language person, you'll like the fact that in Edinburgh, in the south of Edinburgh, there's a place called Birdie House, uh-huh. which of course was the Bordeaux House. The Bordeaux House, Where her yes. ladies uh, which sounds lovely until, of course, we Scots got hold of it and it became Birdie House. But there we are. That's a whole other podcast. Um, one final question as we, we come to grips and get towards the end of our talk about the common writings. What has Berwick-upon-Tweed got to do with all of this? And does that have a common writing? Because this is an English town. Indeed. Berwick-upon-Tweed is an English town. Um whose football team play in the Scottish League, uh-huh. just to be nice and confusing. And Berwick-upon-Tweed has a common writing, and it has an old common writing that goes back centuries. The reason being Berwick-upon-Tweed used to be Scottish. It was Scottish, then it was English, then it was Scottish, then it was English again. It goes back and forth. And so they have a full-on common writings, just like Hoy and Selkirk and Lauder and all the rest. And they do exactly the same thing. They are dressed up, they have speeches, they have bands, and then they come out and they ride the bounds. And they ride north into Scotland, round the border, back down, cross the Tweed, down through the south of the town, down to Tweedmouth, and then back up again for exactly the same reason. They are keeping themselves safe from the marauding English, but also from the marauding Scots, because they are English whilst having a Scottish common riding. It's fantastic, and it's one of those lovely oddities of, of history that I absolutely adore. It's like the Belgian towns that sit inside the Netherlands. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, and that's the joy of it. That's the fun of it. That's the fascination of it all. Yeah, yeah, between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. Absolutely. And what's fun about Berwick-on-Tweed is the northern half of the town, which sits to the north of the Tweed, is a very English town. The southern part of the town, which is south of the Tweed, is a very Scottish part of the town. I don't know why that is, but I'm just aware of that, ah. having visited Berwick-on-Tweed several times. But yes, it is, it's one of life's oddities. Thanks. In, in, very interesting. Can I, it's urban myth time. Would it be true to say, as many believe, that Berwick-on-Tweed is still at war with Russia? Absolutely, they're still at war with Russia. No, um, it's one of these, again, one of these other oddities because the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is made up of a patchwork of countries and places. So you've got England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. We all know that. But then you've got the Isle of Man and you've got places like 
the Channel Islands. This is this makes up our country, if you like. But because Berry Contweed sits on the border and has occasionally been Scottish and English and Scottish and English, it is in its own little way like the Isle of Man. It should be included in the list of territories that make up Britain, ah. and occasionally it isn't. So when Britain decides to sign a treaty with the Russians after the Crimean War to say we're no longer fighting each other, they missed Berwick-upon-Tweed off the treaty. So officially, yes, Berwick-upon-Tweed. <laughs> or so the story goes. So the story goes, I'm yeah. not quite sure, but it's a lovely story and I'm not going to debunk it. But I think it's fantastic that, yes, little Berwick-upon-Tweed, which has a city wall, and which has cannons that point out to sea could still be at war with Russia. I'm sure Putin is absolutely shaking in his boots about that fact. <laughs> uh, listeners, please join us on our next podcast for some more Borders Blatherings. Indeed. We'll look forward to that. Thanks for listening, and we'll hopefully hear you again sometime soon. Bye for now. <laughs>